on today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking squarely and unapologetically at some of the worst men who have ever sat on the throne of St. Peter. And there have been more than a few. What are we as Catholics to think about this? How can the Catholic Church be true, be inspired by God, if these men were at the helm? And what can historically bad popes throughout the last thousand years and more teach Catholics in the 21st century? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Dr. John Rao for episode number 24 of the Apologetic Series here on the SSPX Podcast. Dr. Rao, great to have you back again. And for people who are very astute and watching us on YouTube, yes, we are wearing the same clothes. Yes, we are recording this. It's the same day as last week's episode. Uh, A little behind the scenes. Uh, So thanks for doing this marathon session with me today. Um, On this episode, we're going to be talking about bad popes. There have been bad popes. And how do we combat this or how do we answer these these questions in an apologetical way? first thing you have on your outline that you passed along to me ahead of time was uh, this question, and I have no idea what it is. So I'm curious, what are, quote, the tears of St. Peter? Well, that's the first indication of why we can expect that there might be bad popes. Uh, uh, The term itself is one that's popularized by uh, a man whose name was Auerbach, who wrote a great work called Mimesis, in which he talks about the importance of of, um, Christianity for um, for being able to really uh, probe human behavior and human feeling, because he talks about the fact that I'm going to mention this in an article. Well, by this by the point people see this program, the article will have appeared in in uh, the Angelus. But I'm going to address this a bit in an article there. Uh, he talks about the fact that there was no possibility for the ancients to be able to depict. Uh, psychologically, the tears of St. Peter when he realized he's betrayed Christ, um, that he has, um, he has done exactly what Christ predicted that he would do. And the reason I brought it up here for our point is that you know, we've got from the very beginning an indication that the first pope could do something that he ought not to do, betray Christ, and betray Christ in a public manner as well. Now here he's done something. He has not infallibly taught anything <laughs> that was right. wrong, but he has certainly done something which was wrong. All right, and that should be a clue to tell us that um, oh, we should not be surprised if we find that throughout the entire history of the church there have been popes who have done bad things, and some of them that have done many, many bad things um, for thankfully um, often. Um, not that long periods of time. I yeah. think I would, I think I um I suggested as a question, uh, you know, at, uh, towards the end, something which I should I can mention right now. Uh, one thing that struck me as a historian is the fact that when you compare the record of the papacy with the record of the episcopacy in general, the papacy comes off pretty 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 well. <laughs> well, um, yeah. uh, the episcopacy in general does not come off this way as well as the papacy does. 
Yeah, fair enough. So as we, there, there seems to be this, and, and set of accountism is, is an uh, error that's kind of come across or come about. I mean, I'm sure there have been set of accountants in, in periods in the past, but it seems to be a much more recent uh, development. But there is this confusion about, um, well, there just can't be a bad pope. I think people seem to confuse infallibility with impeccability, meaning a person, the pope can't sin. Right. And there's two different kind of people who are arguing the same exact thing in very different ways. And that's the conservative camp and the set of accountants camp, right? Right, right. They both share this argument that um, that you, 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 you can't have a pope um, that does something which is reprehensible and even even you know reprehensible uh purely on the on a on a, a doctrinal or intellectual level aside from any kind of uh personal uh personal uh, immoral behavior um it's 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 interesting because in both cases this then cuts off your ability to be able to discuss um uh uh Church, church policies and papal policies. You can't, you can't have any discussion because if you, if you have the perfect pope, then you have to accept everything that he does. Um, or if you have uh, the imperfect pope, then you have to, you know, just reject him as being pope entirely. Uh, but you get the same result. You can't discuss papal policy. And interestingly enough, uh, at the time of First Vatican Council. Uh, some of the most important promoters of the doctrine of infallibility made made it crystal clear uh, what was and what was not being defined uh, at the time. The, I'm thinking of right now the Archbishop of Malines, Deschamps, who, uh, if you read uh, still what is probably the 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 best book on First Vatican Council by Butler, uh, he's got long passages where he he describes exactly what it is that they knew the Pope um, uh, was being said uh, that he was incapable of, of teaching, whereas they knew quite well that uh, Pope could do something that was wrong. In, in a way, uh, I mean, not that I mean this seriously, but it might have been better if we immediately had a Pope who had done something that was pretty awful so that we could have an example of it. But we had sure. this run you know, we had this run of popes um, who, um, who, you know, for the course of the 19th century and uh, the bulk of the 20th century were such uh, models uh, that, um, that that created an impression about what the pope was like that's not necessarily uh, reflected in all of history. Right. It is. There's there's a lot of recency bias in the way that we're looking at at the papacy, again, looking at the Leo the 13th, the Pius X, Pius IX, et cetera. Right. Um, so to kind of go go back a little bit, not to start looking at specific examples, but what do you mean a bad pope? You know, the title of this is, you know, looking at, at all the bad popes, but there's different ways that a pope can be bad. Obviously, currently in the in this moment, if you agree that there is a crisis in the church, you would agree that there are some teachings of Pope Francis and previous uh, few popes that have been improper or incorrect or, you know, not edifying. Um, but there's all different flavors of being a bad pope, right? Right. Yes. I mean, there's there's the. I mean, before before our time, before our time in our our, our recent era, uh, and especially this current pontificate, 
um, uh, before our time, when you're talking about bad popes, um, you 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 you've had mostly these examples that were given of people who were personally immoral, um, whether at the time they were pope or uh, sometime in their previous history, um, or popes who were too political um, in their approach, and as a result of that, ignored uh, the spiritual well-being of the church in order to promote their their specific temporal goals, um, or you have a few examples of popes who were um, uh, intellectually confused or 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 um, or or not, not awakened enough, and therefore uh, uh, contributed to a situation in which uh, heretical views were allowed to be uh, uh, be promoted, but not in the same way that we've got. Um, being promoted, let's say, underneath the, the current pontificate. You don't have that same example of it. Uh, but mostly through the period after the ancient world, um, you've got through the Middle Ages and even extending into the period up to the French Revolution, uh, examples given of popes who were either too political or um, immoral in their behavior. Can you can you give me some examples of of what you mean when you say overly political or bad behavior? I guess we can use our imagination about bad behavior, but if you want to get into that too, fine. Uh, yeah. But what are some examples? Some some striking examples that come to mind, Doctor Rao? Well, let's okay. Let, let's start out with the the non bad behavior ones to begin with, okay? And um, and if, if we're if we're if we're talking about things chronologically, chronologically, um, we have. Um, the example, forget Pope Liberius, but you've got Pope Honorius. You know, Pope Honorius um, at the beginning of the 600s. Now, he's a, this is an interesting case because this is a personally very good man, a personally very, very good man, um, a personally very, very good man who is also a fervent supporter of the whole approach of Pope uh, St. Gregory the Great. Right, because Gregory the Great is just just shortly before him, um, and uh, Pope Pope Saint Gregory the Great's approach is uh, very much uh, one that is concerned with the need for dealing with a Christian world that has been uh, badly badly degraded, let's say, in various ways by the barbarian invasions, and you need to be able to. Um, especially when you're talking about things on an educational level, level, popularize the faith in a way that might have left, you know, Christians of the older uh, Roman um, uh, training um, cringe because of the fact that uh, you don't have the same educational level that you had even in, let's say, the uh, late 400s and early 500s. It's it's just different. So he's he's very much a popularizer. Pope Pope Gregory Pope Saint Gregory the Great. Honorius inherits that, and Honorius inherits that in a way that makes him um, uh, willing to look down upon all of the more subtle doctrinal disputes that. Um, that uh, were still very, very much um, being uh, treated seriously in a way that was on a higher level in the uh, the Eastern world, 
in the Eastern world, in the Greek world, the Greek speaking world. Now that, that higher educational level and that devotion to doctrine um, that is, is very much being still cultivated in the Greek speaking world is going to have an influence once again in the West and have an influence in Rome and very, very soon also um, following Pope Honorius. Uh, but when Honorius um, uh, is, is around and first hears of what's going to become a huge doctrinal dispute, the dispute over monophysitism, uh, not monophysitism, uh, uh, the mon monophylites. Um, when he hears about this, uh, he hears about it from uh, sources that don't want him to take it seriously, and he's inclined not to take it seriously as well. And so he, he makes fun of people who do treat it seriously. And uh, he talks about theologians who take this seriously as the voice of croaking frogs, of croaking frogs. And, you know, uh, a lot, you know, his language in this respect, you know, reminds one of Pope Francis <laughs> and some of the things that, that he says. And, um, and this is going to be a, a cause of very great embarrassment for the Roman See afterwards, because the Roman See is very swiftly um, going to become a center of resistance to this heresy that Honorius treated as though it was, you know, silly. Now, it's because he didn't understand that these things are serious and this thing was serious, uh, that he dismissed it in this way. Um, to be followed by popes uh, uh, who, who in, in effect, are confessors and martyrs, um, a pope who's a confessor and martyr, St. Martin, um, who is also guided by one of the great thinkers and defenders of the Roman See, St. Maximus the Confessor. Um, they're the great defenders, but so much is Honorius an embarrassment that he was actually condemned by the Third Council of Constantinople for having done so. Now, I mean, again, this doesn't, this was brought up uh, for discussion at the time of the First Vatican Council, uh, because also having one's behavior um, um, uh, uh, attacked is not the same thing as saying that somebody has said something, has taught something which is erroneous. He didn't teach anything that's erroneous. He dismissed the controversy. But as a result of that, he's come down in our history as a bad pope. But he's not a um, a, a bad pope he, in that sense. Um, he's uh, a bad pope for having intellectually not been aware of what does become a problem that a Roman pontiff after him is going to suffer for as well. But he's come, he's come down to us in those ranks. All right, that's one example. All right. If you leap farther ahead um, uh, to, um, uh, to political popes, we took a political popes, for example, um, Pope Martin IV, um, 1281 to when did he die? In 1285. Pope Martin IV, a good man, you know, very good man, uh, but um, very much in this mold of a number of popes in the 1200s and 1300s who thought that they could 
politically mold everything to be exactly correctly, to be exactly um, correctly organized in order to be able to defend the relationship of church and state around Europe. And it's the sort of problem that St. Bernard of Clairvaux had warned about already in the 1100s to his, his, his pupil who'd become Pope Eugenius III, in that um, if you put too much emphasis on the temporal, the political, the legal, the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the bureaucracy, the money that you need to be able to run all of this, um, this stuff, you're gonna lose track of the hierarchy of values. And the hierarchy of values is one that tells us that it's the ultimate spiritual goal of the church, uh, which always overrides everything else. So Martin IV gets involved in um, uh, this, this um, last or one of the last stages of the battle of the papacy with the empire, um, the, the focused in Germany, but which had then involved uh, who was in control of the area of southern Italy and Sicily, uh, and uh, the desire on the part of the Roman pontiffs not to have the man who had the title of emperor and was king of Germany to also have the title of um, of ruler of uh, kingdom, uh, the kingdom of um, of Sicily. In fact, I forget which historian it is who said who said that uh, Sicily um, was um, was the graveyard of the medieval papacy because this constant effort to make sure that the right guy was there in charge of Sicily and Southern Italy, just got you bogged down in more and more and more political hoo-ha. And what he did was he, he decided, because the papacy as it was having these battles, um, uh, got more and more convinced that uh, in order to, to defeat the wicked family of the Hohenstaufen, who had the title of emperor under their control, and also that of uh, the ruler of Sicily, you had to favor the wonderful family of the Capetians in France. So what he does is he gets one of the Capetians, a man named Charles of Anjou, to become the agent of the papacy. Um, but the problem is that everybody down there in Sicily can't stand Charles of Anjou. And as a result, if you have uh, that, uh, that um, uh, dynasty in charge down there, it's going to then reflect back on the power of the papacy um, and the, uh, the, the reputation of the papacy in a way that, um, that, um, that brings down the spiritual with the, with the temporal. And this whole issue of what's going on down there is going to continue. Um, it already had been going on for some decades now, and it's going to continue in a way that's going to just plague the papacy um, and and uh, and 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 contribute really to uh, it's it's discrediting in this these matters in those horrible centuries of the 1300s and the 1400s. Another one is 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 Pope Clement the um, the the uh, uh, what is he? I can't remember his number there. Seventh, I think, um, in um, um, in the 15 uh, uh, the 1520s, because. He's just constantly politically maneuvering um, in order to try to protect himself in a way that makes him look like he's betraying everybody. And it's his 
political shenanigans that end up getting Rome in 1527 sacked uh, by angry troops that were working for Charles V, who hadn't been paid um, and who decided that the best way that they could uh, end up getting paid um, was by um, going down to Rome and sacking it and, 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 and uh, gaining a cult compensation in, in that fashion. Um, he, he ends up, the, there's all kinds of, kinds of poems that are produced about, uh, about, about Clement uh, because of the fact that he, he, he looks this way and then that way and the other way, and you never know which side he's really on. He's, he's the bane of the existence of uh, a number of the reform groups that were very active already in the 1520s, uh, who uh, complained that with all of his attention focused on politics, he's ignoring the fact that, um, that um, uh, he's, he's destroying the reputation of the Roman church. Uh, and then all sorts of corrupt people are able to utilize very easy exemptions from one kind of canonical rule or another that he and the curia working under him are giving. Um, uh, an example of a person who complains about him uh, vigorously in this regard is a, a, a man who is a, a deep, deep reformer of great, great renown, who is going to uh, become Pope himself a little bit later on, who also gets, ironically, in a different way, the reputation of being too political a Pope. Um, and that is uh, a man whose name is Carafa, who comes from Naples, who was one of the most powerful leaders of the reform order, which is known as the Theatines. And Carafa, uh, who very much is committed to the, uh, to, to the goals of the Theatines, who want the clergy, their clergy, the people who are part of them, to be absolutely and totally poor, totally poor. And um, Carafa is already a, um, an influential figure at the time of, of uh, Clement, Pope Clement in the 1520s. And he writes him letters and says, uh, you, you, what you're doing is something which just is taking your attention away from what it is that really counts. And the people who are operating in your name are utilizing your name to uh, permit all kinds of abuses in, in, in church life. It doesn't get anywhere. Then when he became Pope as Pope Paul IV later on in the 1550s, I think we, we, we already mentioned this in a previous uh, episode, that he unfortunately, as a reformer, and he's a ferocious reformer, um, and, and does things as a ferocious reformer, which are really, uh, you know, really uh, out of this world, but which create a completely different Rome by the time he's, he's, he's done. He also has got this idea that he's got to do everything politically, absolutely accurately in order to create the conditions for uh, a pure relationship of church and state. And he's one of the people who um, in the 1550s is upset about the fact that governments like the government of Spain have too much authority um, over church affairs and have got too much of authority because they're too powerful in general, including being in control of southern Italy and Sicily. And he goes to war with Philip II, um, Paul IV, which is absurd because there's no way that he can possibly win it. And is 
um, uh, very much going to uh, uh, ultimately be brought down um, in terms of his uh, ability to rule effectively because of that war. But this is a man who's a good man, but doing things politically so irresponsible that his whole ability to rule uh, collapses. Let me just mention one, one of the things that he does as a, uh, a reformer that leaves Rome a completely different city. I've mentioned this in a number of lectures, maybe some of which you've heard in the past. But for example, there are all of these, um, uh, these priests and monks who are there in Rome without any reason for being there. And it's the sort of thing that he was upset about in the 1520s that he was complaining to Clement about, that these, these wandering monks and priests are up to no good and they give the church a bad name. So he ordered them all to leave and go back to their monasteries in their own diocese. And of course, since people had not been enforcing these rules, nobody paid any attention to him. Then he gave them a second chance and ordered them and he didn't, um, they didn't pay any attention. Then he gave them a third chance and then um, closed down um, the entrances to the city and sent the papal police uh, through the whole city to swoop up all of these monks and priests who had nothing to do and then punish them to, by sending them rowing in the Mediterranean um, in papal ships so that they could learn how to shape up as a result of it. That ended the problem in Rome. That ended it. But as a good yeah. man who does bad things, or as you've got uh, politically, just politically, so you got you got situations like that um, that are the case, or or people who are just, you know, uh, some people who are just too too spiritual, and then are able to be manipulated. With the classic example of that being Celestine, Pope Celestine, um, Saint Celestine who is, you know, Pope for just a few months in 1294, followed by Boniface VIII, after you'd had this horrific um, uh, uh, vacancy in, the, in, the, in the, the, the Papal See, and then finally you get um, this, this uh, uh, very, very uh, ascetic monk um, elected Pope, this is Pope Celestine, uh, and he's uh, virtually kept a kind of spiritual prisoner by the king down there in Naples uh, at the time period. Uh, and everyone who is astute can see that he's so focused on spiritual matters that he's allowing the entire affair, uh, all the affairs of the church to be dominated by this political leader. So that's why they convince him to abdicate, although he's so holy, that his abdication is treated by Dante as a great crime, so he's sent to hell by, by right. Dante. You know, um, in um, uh, and again, the next pope who abdicates under these circumstances is Benedict, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, and his abdication is going to be treated by many people with the same kind of anger as uh, uh, Dante treated that of of, of Celestine. Yeah. Uh, uh, interestingly enough. He also, Benedict, um, is a man who was, uh, despite his, you know, his, 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 his theological speculations, which are, you know, at time, were at times wild, and his commitment to this hermeneutic of continuity was himself personally, was himself personally, I think, an extremely spiritually minded figure. 
um, and um, and and then an academic genius as well. I was I'm just preparing a lecture, my final lecture on this church history series that uh, I'm going to be giving on, on, on May 21st, just a few days after we were filming this. And uh, when he had his last audience after um, uh, after before he abdicated, uh, one person who was in the crowd. Uh, after afterwards was talking to the police chief at the Vatican and the police chief was crying said he was just personally too pure to have this position you know so and he himself then says afterwards I'm just not a good administrator <laughs> so I don't know right but so so well, I mean is he a bad pope well you know I mean that's a question that's that's a question for history to decide yeah. and future popes to decide later yeah certainly um it's fascinating. There's, there's like, like we mentioned at the beginning, there's all these different flavors. There's, there's good popes who do bad things. There's personally motivated, you know, like, greedy popes. Now, what about that last part? Someone who is maybe morally not up to snuff, uh -huh. a, a person who's elected pope who's not morally up to snuff, can they still do good things for the church? Uh, yes, yes, they can. Um, I mean, we've got, um, we've got, uh, well, I mean, these are two quite different figures in a way, but they're both they're both attacked for being bad popes in different ways. But I mean, let's take the example of um, Pope Alexander the Sixth and then Julius the um, um, uh, Julius the Second. You know, um, you've got uh, um, you've got the following one one another, following one another. Um, uh, Julius, who comes after Alexander the Sixth was so horrified by Alexander the sixth that he didn't even want he didn't want to sleep in the same bedroom that he he slept in when we talk about Julius you know I mean what, what do we think we think about a military man right you know a military man who's who's there spending all of his time um try he's in uniform he's fighting he's fighting is is that a good Pope is that a good Pope um he um he's very much concerned about putting the papal states on a firm military and political and economic footing you know by the same token he is also um very much committed to um to 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 to, to trying to do certain things to bring back a discipline among the clergy at the time and he was horrified by the fact that the primary concern of Alexander VI seemed to be not really the putting of the papal states on a firm footing for the sake of the long-term uh, benefit of the church, but for the sake of his family, for the sake of his family, for the sake of uh, the children that he had, and the children that he had had not while he was pope, but when he was, you know, beforehand, um, himself a, a wayward a wayward figure just as paul the third who became pope and did all of the things that were necessary for giving um an open door to uh the council of trent the jesuits um any number of other uh, uh ac ac groups and activities that, that that created the catholic reformation in his youth was a wayward figure that people could make reference to um and then uh, 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 sort of brand him as a bad pope later on 
And then Alexander the Sixth. Alexander the Sixth does a lot of things politically um, that are that are that are also morally reprehensible. Um, so did a previous pope before in Sixtus the Fourth uh, do all sorts of things that are morally, you know, rather reprehensible, involving uh, potentially allowing his own family members to be involved in assassination plots. And yet Alexander the Sixth, if I'm not mistaken, wrote a beautiful encyclical on the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and wow. there's, there's 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 nothing there's nothing that happens in terms of um, promoting bad teaching in any way that I can think of underneath, certainly the reign of Julius II, um, uh, Julius, who's got, a, um, who's got a reforming council going on as well, uh, that no one ever speaks of anymore, the Fifth Lateran Council. No one ever speaks of it. I think it continues into the reign of Leo X uh, afterwards. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's things that can be done by, by people who are morally maybe not up to snuff, but, um, but ultimately of, of value. All the, Paul III, let's go back to him again, the Farnese family. I mean, he's, he's, he's got his, his grandchildren there serving him in the church, right? His grandchildren um, serving him in the church, but he himself, and, and, and Charles V is so angry at the Farnese family of Paul III um, uh, that it, it kind of poisons the relationship of church and state uh, underneath the reign of Paul III and Charles V in the 1530s and 1540s. And there are things that Paul III does that just simply cause him to shove all, all of the great reform actions that he takes um, at the time period completely out of the picture um, if it, if it means uh, that uh, his family's, his family's uh, 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 benefit is going to be pursued. All right. So, he, you know, he's complex. He's complex. And he, 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 is the, he is also someone who causes people who are 100 percent reform minded and uh, against whom you can find no kind of uh, uh, reproach to make while they're alive. Um, uh, headaches galore. Uh, his 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 legates at the first um, uh, session of the Council of Trent are, or at least one of them, is tortured by the 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 actions of Paul III because he's got this one good thing he's doing the Council of Trent, and then he's uh, he's destroying what he's doing because he's more concerned about the benefit of the Farnese family in a way that um, that throws all of the business of the council into jeopardy over and over again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so just those are some of the specific examples. Again, and good guys doing really bad ones. <laughs> yeah, right. Good guys doing bad stuff. Bad guys doing good stuff. What about? Well, what are some other examples that you want to give? Because oh, uh. I mean, the classic. <laughs> the classic examples is this wretched period from the late eight hundreds um, uh, through to the ten hundreds when you finally get. Um, uh, the, the the reform of the church that 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 creates the glories of the high middle ages firmly into place, and there are intervening periods of um, of, uh, of, uh, of 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 efforts being made in order to be able to reform things that are repeatedly defeated. Um, 
by um, by uh, the return of the bad popes. Now the 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 general there's there's really two general frameworks for really bad popes, <laughs> really bad popes. One um, one is uh, when you've got a rut established, you know, and that's that's the kind of thing that you get established uh, in the um, uh, the 1400s and the early 1500s. You've got a rut, um, and by rut, what I mean is that you've got uh, all of the machinery that was created for this, a strong papacy that was created in the in the high Middle Ages. You've got the strong machinery all running with its standard operating procedures, but you've got that standard operating procedures, uh, those standard operating procedures and the machinery in the hands of popes who are more concerned for their own family's well-being or political matters, wh whatever it might be. And the standard operating procedures of a strong machine just, just kind of... Um, you know, they, they just move along doing what it is that the governing pope wants it to do um, without any kind of, 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 of questioning. And the people who are the reformers who want to stop bad things from happening find that they are chastised as being um, radical troublemakers because um, the standard operating procedures of the Roman Curia and the Roman Church are obviously what it is that's needed to keep the strength of the papacy going, and you're, you're trying here to throw wrenches into the machinery. And in fact, you know what you've got there when you have the arguments of these people um, under these kinds of circumstances operated? You've, you've got the basic problem that you have with the conservatives nowadays. You know, the conservatives say, this is what the Pope is doing. This is what the machinery of the church does. Therefore, it's correct. And therefore, you go along with it. And if you complain about it, um, you're, 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 you're the problem and not the yep. machinery of the church. Now, the other kind of example is when you've just got, you don't even have any machinery really operating seriously any longer, whether because of... Um, you know, uh, troubles politically of one sort or another, or lack of money or uh, chaos around you. Uh, and you've just got simply local strong forces that, um, that are competing for control of the papacy. And that's what you had as a situation that had developed uh, with the uh, competing local Roman noble families of the late 800s and the 900s and the 10 hundreds. And what you've got is a kind of Wild West show uh, that's, that's, that's developed there. And uh, you don't have an established set of standard operating procedures. You've, you've just got, you know, you've just got Billy the Kids, you know, in effect, fighting for things, sometimes picking somebody who has an outward sign of somewhat respectability as a front man for you, but but uh, oftentimes just having really reprehensible characters from among these families who are con in control. And, you know, it's uh, at one point in the 900s, you've got one family 
that basically is in control of things called the Theoph Theophylact family. Um, but you've got fights among families in the eight, late 800s and then in the 900s leading to the domination of this other family for a while and then other families that were battling uh, uh, over things. And I wanted to be ready for this. Um, so I've got, I, I, I pulled up on my computer, you know, uh, uh, some indications of, um, of who we're talking about here. Um, and um, I wanted to make sure that I, I had them in front of me and so I could, I could uh, cite them for you. So you sure. first like Pope S Stephen VI, you know, he's Pope between 1896, uh, 1896, 18, 896 and 897. And he's the one, he's the one who, um, who presided over the famous uh, cadaver synod. I don't know if you know of the cadaver synod, where his yeah. predecessor, Pope Formosus, um, they had his body pulled up, um, and the rotted body was put uh, uh, on trial in its uh, in its robes, and then they uh, they they found it guilty. Uh, they they deprived it of three fingers, um, and then they um, and then they 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 tossed it into the Tiber. Um, then what happened is that he um, he was finally killed, Stephen the Sixth, and he was strangled. All right, he was strangled. Now he was followed by Pope Sergius the uh, Third. Pope Sergius the Third was Pope from eight ninety seven um, uh, to nine eleven, and I just pulled up one description of him. But you know, if you match it with almost every description of it, you get the same thing. The only pope known to have ordered the mur murder of another pope. He was the one who ordered the murder of Stephen uh, the Sixth. The only one known to have fathered an, an illegitimate son who later became pope. Um, it's it's in his reign that historians talk about their beginning in Rome, um, a papacy which they call more a pornocracy than a papacy because it's involved with all of these you know shenanigans of one of one sort. Um, or um, another. Then you've got um, Pope, uh, let's see which one we have coming next here that I wanted to mention. Uh, Pope John Twelfth, Pope from 955 uh, to 964, um, uh, uh, 964, he, um, he had his battles with the, uh, the, um, the King of Germany, Otto I, who came down to Rome um, and finally, um, finally was recrowned Roman emperor. He reestablishes the title of Roman emperor after a period of um, of uh, 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 the title falling in abeyance. And everybody agrees that John the Twelfth was um, was personally uh, immoral. Uh, whether all the accusations that uh, Otto has against them are. Are, are, are true or not has been debated by people. But in any case, Otto uh, summoned a council which claimed that John had ordained a deacon in the stable. He had consecrated the 10-year-old boy as the Bishop of Todi. He had converted the Lateran Palace into a brothel. He had raped female pilgrims at St. Peter's. He'd stolen church offerings. He'd drunk toasts to the devil and invoked the aid of Jove, Venus, and other pagan gods when playing dice. Um, 
But in any case, he does seem to have been beaten to death by the by the husband of a woman with whom he was having an affair. All right. He's he's certainly immoral. He's certainly immoral. Then you get, and I'll just end with this one, Pope Benedict IX. Pope Benedict IX was Pope in three stages. He was Pope between 1032 and 1044, then again in 1045, and then 1047 to 1048. He gave up his papacy the first time because he sold it. He sold it in 1044. Oh. He returned in 1045. Uh, to depose his replacement and reigned from one from one month. Then he left it because he sold the papacy again a second time. Right? He he finally was thrown out entirely. Um, Saint Saint Peter Damian described him as quote feasting on immorality and a demon from hell in the disguise of a priest. And he says this in his famous book, the Liber Gamorianus, in which he accuses him of other crimes, which I won't mention here uh, publicly for your, 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 your audience. I mean, the things that, um, that people have said, people have said about, um, about um, uh, even popes have said about their predecessors in this regard are, are, are mind-boggling. Mostly they've been kind enough to say, that the best thing that they could say about their predecessor was never to mention his name again, um, because it was it was um, uh, for the for the benefit of the church for him to just simply fall completely into oblivion. All right, so you get wow. batches of 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 bishops like this. Um, then the question comes up: If you have such a bad pope, how do you get rid of him? Well, that was that was going to be my next question because it, it sounds like you said. That he was thrown out towards the end of his third papacy. <laughs> so, was it you know, based on recent scholarship? I'm talking recent last 500 years or so. It seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no one who can judge the pope because he is the supreme monarch of the church. You can't get rid of him. It can't be a council of cardinals, anything like that. Again, that's open to debate. But if you do have a pope like this, how do you get rid of him? Well, you know, quite frankly. I think that there's um, uh, a problem with regard to uh, the uh, church's understanding in this respect, because canon law has really not ever um, come up with a satisfactory argument in this regard. Right. And what you're left with is, on the one hand, um, the general conviction that you can't get rid of a pope because no one can judge the pope. And then on the other hand, the, the, the church is praising the people who have got rid of popes, who have got rid of popes, um, because that because their actions, which are in effect, because of the failure to address this whole issue fully, not justified, being accepted as having been good um, in the long run. And of course, the great the great greatest examples of this come from the church's praise at the interference of the. Uh, the 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 Holy Roman emperors uh, in removing people like um, the 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 uh, uh, the man John the man that Otto removes and then their return uh, to name uh, people as popes like uh, uh, the man that we we know of as Saint Leo the the ninth who was pope in the ten hundreds 
Um, and then ultimately at the time of the Great Western Schism, I mean, what the what the emperor did at the time of the Great Western Schism is really not accepted by canon law. I mean, think of what the situation was like at the time of that Great Western Schism. You have three people claiming to be Pope. Uh, the um, oh, and that brings up the the, the name of another um, oddity among the popes. One of them, uh, the, the the man who was Pope at the time from the uh, uh, the Avignon uh, uh, succession, Benedict XIII, um, who refused to resign. He refused to resign to allow for the election of uh, another Pope, Martin V, the one who comes out of the Council of Constance. Uh, but you have the emperor managing to get a voluntary um, a resignation or abdication of one of the candidates. You have another one who's kind of hounded into resigning. He actually fled in order to avoid um, resigning, but ultimately does. And then you get Benedict XIII who refuses um, to resign and just goes, he's, he's just off there uh, for, for some years past the end of the Council of Constance that, uh, that, that uh, created Martin V. Um, and there's really no serious indication of how you ultimately said that this uh, was legitimate, how this worked out, except that everybody accepted it. Um, there are other peculiarities that have remained. I mean, for example, for example, um, uh, uh, one of the one of the popes from the third line uh, that came of popes that comes through the Council of Pisa um, took the title of Alexander. Took the title of Alexander, and when, um, but he was considered to be an illegitimate pope with respect to uh, the whole um, uh, line. Certainly nowadays, he's considered to have been an illegitimate pope. However, when the the, the next Roman pontiff who took the term Alexander, um, uh, as as pope, which is the, the the Borgia pope that we just mentioned before, he took as his number the number after this man who's not considered to have been a legitimate pope. Now, why he should be he should be a previous Alexander, but no, he's the. It's it's very awkward. You know, I I uh, I I I I I once asked a cardinal. I don't want to mention the cardinal's name because I don't want to. Put put him well. He's he's no longer with us, but put him on the spot anyway. But I want to ask him about some of these issues, and from the answer I got from him, it seemed to me to be that they really don't have an answer. Yeah, um, and the answer is um, that acceptance seems to be an indication of what um, uh, acceptance uh, of something which has clearly worked out for the the. The, the benefit of the church as a whole is what um, is what is um, has been considered to been the proof of what 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 um, uh, uh, that what has happened is is legitimate, and um, that's why also I'm very very hesitant to talk about you know too many battles over whether it was this precisely right was that precisely wrong was this precisely okay because when you look at some of the circumstances in church history. Uh, uh, regarding elections, there's been a lot of shenanigans, a lot of shenanigans. It's very tricky. Yeah. Um, 
it, it, it does boggle the mind as to how how the church can get out of these situations. And it seems to it's it's you know what I always think of is um it's kind of like squatters' rights, where it's like, all right, if this is the situation, yeah. this is how it is, fine, in order to maintain peace. And I think the church has a similar doctrine in canon law. I, I'm no canon law expert at all, but I think the church has a similar doctrine where it's like, if there is peace and there's recognized stability, fine. Except this is the law, even if the methods by which it got there are not as good, we accept that to be the the norm or the standing uh, reality of, of the situation. Right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, to, to talk about things immediately, the immediate case and in, 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 you know, in, in our own situation, uh, my own attitude towards the current pontiff uh, is the attitude, I forget which of the, which literary critic it was, but there was a French literary critic, um, I think in the 20th century, who was asked, who was the, who was the um, greatest French novelist? And his answer was, Victor Hugo, alas, you know, alas. And my attitude is, um, um, is the current pontiff the legitimate pontiff? My attitude is, yes, alas, (laughs) alas, because because, um, it's very difficult. I mean, Benedict said that he accepted, accepted this, accepted this. Then, of course, you'd have people say, well, Benedict wasn't the legitimate pontiff. A pope. Sure. Nobody's been the legitimate pope since 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 Pius XII. But sure. I mean, it seems to me that the the tradition of the church indicates that this question of acceptance is is is. The, do you know the book, uh, the Mitre and the Crook? Yes. Yeah. Well, there you've got another example with respect to the question before about can a bad pope do good things? Because Brian Houghton in that book. He, he the, the the point of it is that the vicar general who becomes the the next bishop who is a depicted as a rather slimy character um is going to continue with the good policy of the good man who had decided to stick with tradition and his his point there is the rather cynical one that once the crooks are on the side of the good you know that we have a chance to keep going i would hate yeah. to adopt that as my my attitude but it would mean, therefore, that the machinery, the machinery was now running smoothly enough on behalf of something which was good, that even if you have a personally rather reprehensible person who's at the charge of the in charge of the whole thing, um, that uh, maybe you can hope that it will run more smoothly. But the best to hope for is that we have saints as popes. Yeah. So you know the three categories of popes: the political, the wise, the saint. We should have a political pope who's also wise, who's also a saint. Maybe yeah, all of them. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to ask you your broad thoughts on all of this as we as we close. But um, and we've already talked about a little bit about how do you, you know, if we have a bad pope right now, how would one propose to get rid of him if we even could? And I think the answer is we can't. Um, we can- at least not according to canon law. No, we can pray. We can pray. I, I have a friend of mine who says, "We can pray that he that he 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 uh, has a turnaround." Yeah. Because, because the best thing that would happen um, is um, 
uh, you know, St. Augustine in one of his debates with um, one of his Donatist enemies um, did the best thing imaginable. He converted him, <laughs> you know, so we can we can pray that he, um, uh, you know, he turns around because the best thing that could possibly happen would be that he turns around and denounces the things that we don't like that he's done. Yeah. Up until now, that would be the best thing that could possibly happen. Um, we can pray that um, that he ceases doing the things that he's doing that um, that that are causing difficulties. Um, and I think that we can we can pray as this friend of mine. I, I don't think it's 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 unchristian to pray that if he does not turn around and does not cease to do the things that he does, that we can pray that he ceases to be pope, because that could mean that he resigns. That could mean sure. a number of different things. Sure, uh, but it would be it would be it would be wicked to to pray for something which was 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 was, was evil. Um, yes, um, and um, and um, and we can pray, or we can uh, we can pray that that um, that um, that uh, uh, God does something to save his to save his his church. I think it's yeah. really very, very interesting. Something that I I may have made, I think I may have brought this up in a previous discussion. But in preparing this last lecture on Benedict, it's I find it very interesting that the comment that he makes about the third secret of Fatima, while John Paul II was still alive, uh, which talks about what happened with the assassination attempt, is having somehow or other. Um, uh, uh, brought the historicity, the historic aspect of Fatima to an end. Something that he says a completely different, he, he completely changes when he goes to, to Fatima again in, I think it's 2010. Um, he goes back to Portugal and he says, those who believe that the historical message of Fatima, um, the historical meaning of Fatima has come to an end are not correct, all right? So I think that right. he, he um, this, this very, very intelligent man, and I think a very personally good man um, with uh, of, a flawed hermeneutic of continuity, I think even he reaches towards the end of his pontificate an awareness that this is not working out the way that it ought to. And um, we are living in times which may well be... Um, apocalyptic times. But he says, and I think this is pastorally a very good thing, he says, remember that for the Christian, the 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 end times um are is it means the second coming of Christ. It means something hopeful, <laughs> not right. something not something that is is fit for uh, some sort of uh, uh cinematic um, um uh, uh boom. Um, for people to to revel in for, for that purposes. Sure, there's there's a push in all sorts of areas of our civilization today, especially based on the democratic norms that we all live in, that most of the world lives in, of transparency, of being publicly accountable, of having people be able to judge who's right and who's wrong, even if you're in positions of authority. In that vein. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing for the church to admit its wrongs, to admit that it has bad popes? I, we did a, I did a podcast on this channel 
some time ago with Father Sherry about should the Pope have apologized for the problems in Canada with the indigenous people, going back to the previous episode we did on colonization, um, should the church admit that there are bad popes? Does it hurt the church for us to be transparent in the modern sense about this? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, th- I think that generally speaking, generally speaking, this, this willingness to talk about problems is really rather modern, you know, and I mean, People, people in the Middle Ages were not shocked by the fact that there were bad priests, bad bishops, bad popes, bad kings, bad, bad, bad anything. And, you know, if you're talking about airing dirty laundry, the entirety of the Cluniac reform movement that created the high Middle Ages uh, is one gigantic airing of dirty laundry. And in fact, when the papacy gets involved, when when the Cluniac reformers manage to get control of the papacy, what the papacy does is it takes the papal show on the road. You know, the this these the the the, the history of the traveling popes is not something from the time of Paul the Sixth onwards. It's what the popes did in the ten hundreds and the eleven hundreds. They traveled around. And they traveled around, and when they traveled around, they held reforming councils, and those reforming councils encouraged the airing of dirty, uh, dirty laundry uh, by by everybody. What I don't like, and I find uh, actually um, reprehensible, is the idea of uh, the 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 existing authorities deciding that what you do is you waste your time talking about past past um problems because because i mean for for one thing you're 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 engaging in a game here i mean that's something that you can certainly do at a university that's something something you can certainly do as part of an educational program but for you to decide that what you're going to do is judge the behavior of people who are long gone, whose behavior, by the way, has already been judged in the books that the church utilizes and has stored in the, its libraries anyway. All you have to do is read Ludwig von Pastor's History of the Popes to know that it's filled with this, um, with this, um, you know, the, with these condemnations of, of 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 bad behavior and that and mistakes and the like. But to do that is 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 not only reprehensible because you're not allowing for anybody to defend himself, you know, and which is which is which is which is which is awful, but it's also um, hypocritical because this is being done. This is being done um, uh, publicly um, in the presence of the most hypocritical governments and a hypocritical United Nations. Um, and and hypocritical global elite that is utilizing this for this for the for the purposes of just simply um, allowing the church to destroy its own reputation, while 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 these forces themselves are engaged in the most horrendous crimes imaginable. It's 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 just not the case that you do that. I mean, yes, you deal with your immediate problems. But here, here again, here again, um, Benedict, Benedict was brutalized by 
uh, people in the press and in the clergy, and particularly the clergy from Germany, when he, dealing with the immediate problems of clerical abuse, of clerical abuse, which, which he was being accused of being the aider and the better of when what was happening was that everything that was uh, that emerged um, that he was dealing with was really uh, having its worst heyday in the 1970s and 80s. Most of the people that were a, that were a problem that were brought to the fore in, in, in let's say 2009, 10, 11 were people who committed crimes in the 70s and the 80s and perhaps into the 90s. Um, uh, and um, he was then raked over the coals because of the fact that he said, well, actually, he said, this is this is the product of the of the whole sexual revolution of the 1960s. Yeah. And he, but he ought to have combined that by saying the sexual revolution of the 1960s with the abdication by the church in the 1960s and 70s and onwards of its own disciplinary authority. Um, and he was said, oh my gosh, this is this is the this this is the proof that the church is 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 unrepentant. It's unrepentant. And those people who were accusing him of this, and I I, I mean the, I have the names in my head, but I'd have to hunt for them a little bit before I could come them out. They said that the answer to the church's the the abuses of the 1970s and 80s and 90s was to declare that the abuses were not abuses, which is what they're doing right now. You know, instead of instead of you know uh, instead of um, uh, lamenting your failure in the past, what you had to do is to say, well, actually, there's no problem with homosexuality. There's no problem now with pederastry. There's no problem with anything. Um, with all of these uh, organizations that are benefiting from the destruction of the church, including now the United Nations, with its call for horrendous, horrendous changes in the education of little children to allow them to contemplate doing horrible things at young ages. I mean, this is this is this is this is diabolical. This is diabolical. It's just downright stupid as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a fair point. Um, all right. As we close, I'd like to ask you just kind of a more broad question. Sure. We there was recently a uh, an expose on sixty Minutes about the Mormon Church, uh, and I have a point. I'm getting to it. Um, where they talked about this hundred billion dollar, I don't remember how much, uh, you know, savings account, and and how the Mormon Church is is doing all sorts of improper things with the with the funds. And I watched that as a Catholic, and I go, Yeah, see, the Mormon Church is corrupt. We all knew that. Right. Uh, and I'm on my high horse as a Catholic saying that. But then as I was thinking about it, I go, well, a non-Catholic could look at the church and particularly this list of bad popes that we just went through and say, see, the church is corrupt. See, there are all these examples. Mormon church, that's one example of, of you know, one issue. Look at the Catholic church throughout all of its history. Awful popes and Catholics, you say, by their fruits, you shall know them. Um, so Dr. Rao, what do you say kind of as a final word about all this, how do you answer this allegation? Yeah, we've gone through how, you know, infallibility is not touched by that. We've gone at it from a scholarly point of view. We've looked at, yeah, you can't get rid of a Pope from a canon law point of view, but just from a sense of, yeah, but it just seems really rotten. The Catholic church does. How do you broadly answer that? 
Well, I mean, I think first off, I'd go back to my, my one part of my argument um, to begin with uh, that we, we talked about a little bit earlier in the session today. And, and that is the fact that if you look at, I, I mean, you yes, first of all, we, we never have argued that uh, it was going to be, and this from scripture onward and from the oral tradition onwards, that uh, that there was going to be somehow or other a pure institution uh, in the form of all of its members doing everything correctly. Um, that's never been a claim that 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 that, that we made. Secondly, uh, earlier in the program, I made the claim that when you look at our history in comparison with everything else, um, it doesn't look that bad at all. Um, it doesn't look that bad at all. I mean, I'm just thinking of one thing that popped into my head. I mean, the first time you get a problem with um, a, a real crime in terms of a change of, 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 of popes, not a martyrdom, but a crime, you're talking about reaching the late 800s. Whereas if you look at the Muslims with their caliphs and all of the rest, it's, it's immediate. It's almost immediate that they've got all of these, 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 these crimes that are taking place and wars that are taking place, not martyrdoms and the like. But I would go ultimately with this other argument, especially in the face of uh, the, the open, open diabolical teachings and hypocrisy that we're facing on the, on the, on the part of all of our accusers today. I would go back to the argument that we talked about with um, I, that, that, that I've, I've mentioned with regard to Louis Vuillot in, the, in, in, in his statements in the past. The problem with the Catholic Church is when, and with Catholics, is when they do not live up to what their teachings are. The yeah. problems with the people that we face is that uh, come about when they do live up to the teachings um, that they are presenting. Um, they're only good when they're not following the teachings that they that they that they are promoting, and in fact, they often, when we bring up the problems with the teachings that they promote, they say, "Oh, oh, you know, you're exaggerating because no one would really do the kind <laughs> of things uh, that you do." That's a famous argument that might might be apocryphal with regard to uh, Jeremy Bentham with his utilitarianism. Somebody is said to have asked him. Uh, well, what happens, you know, with his his principle of utility, fifty one percent determining it? He says, what happens when fifty one percent of Englishmen say that all the forty nine percent of the others should be should be murdered? And he said, an Englishman would never do that sort of thing. Well, they do, mm -hmm. um, and they will, and they are underneath the kinds of arguments that people who always said that common sense would prevent anyone from going too far in these respects. They're they're doing all of this. And, and if you look at the pro, I mean, pro-lifers knew this, uh, have known this from the very beginning, that the people who were claiming at the beginning of uh, the legalization of abortions, that all they were concerned about was making, making it uh, uh, very rare and safe and the like, um, they knew in fighting these people that their, their real vision leads to what we have right now, which is uh, a worldwide elite that is more and more demonstrating that it hates the human race. Um, it wants to build a new Gnostic creation. Um, and it has no respect for human life whatsoever. You know, so, so, I mean, again, my argument is 
The Catholic Church is what it's supposed to be when it does what it teaches, when it follows its leader, when it follows what its saints have done. It's bad when it doesn't live up to its own teachings. On the other hand, our opponents, they're only accidentally um, good when they don't live up to their teachings, which are rotten to the, to the core. Yeah. Insofar as they, insofar as they veer away from what it is that uh, that uh, that that faith and sound reason tell us. Yeah. Another fascinating episode, Doctor Rao. Thank you so much for taking the time to get this all prepared. And I know you have a busy schedule, and uh, we'll have you on for two more episodes, um, right. looking at some more scandals. Yay! I can't wait. Floor. I'll change my clothing for those episodes. Yeah, exactly. So um, thanks again. Have a great weekend and uh, we'll chat with you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.